started out by exposing Europeans to seven minutes of Mandarin Chinese in the form of a weather report. We didn't give them a particular instruction. We just exposed them to the weather report. And then afterwards, we gave them a surprise experiment where we then tried to see whether they had been able to identify words, meanings, and whether they could generalize. And of course, when we started out doing this, people said, that's madness. Nobody can learn anything in seven minutes. But it turned out that people can. Both children and adults are actually incredibly good at this breaking and entering business into a new language. So there is something about our capacity for language learning, identifying things that are frequent and generalizing over those. There is something about that capacity that is really powerful. And very interestingly to us, it's powerful also in adults. It doesn't go away. And this I find really encouraging and very interesting. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. At the moment, we are focusing on two topics in this podcast, language and diversity. In this episode, we continue to have a closer look at the study of languages. In the previous episode on this topic, we traveled to the past and got to know more about how to do research about the origin of Indo-European languages from Jenny Larsson and her project LAMP. Now we return to the present and talk to Marianne Gullberg, professor in psycholinguistics at Lund University. She is also a non-resident long-term fellow for programs and languages and cognitive science here at SCAS. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I am very happy to welcome Marianne Gullberg as a guest to SCAS Talks. Not at least because I am one of the many people who has learned a foreign language as an adult, and I also speak multiple languages every day. And just a note to our listeners. Marianne Gullberg has joined us from Lund via Zoom. We hope that the sound quality will be okay. So welcome, Marianne. Could you introduce yourself? Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, my name is Marianne Gullberg, and I am, as you said, Professor of Psycholinguistics at Lund University. I am also director of something called Lund University Humanities Lab, which is a university-wide infrastructure, meaning a place where you can come and use tools and expertise and methods, and we're open to everyone, but mostly we are open to the humanities and to the social sciences. This sounds really interesting. I have a background in natural sciences, and to me, Lab for Humanities sounds like a fun place to be. It is. So, but now, since we will talk about languages in this episode and multiple languages, how many do you speak? Oh, that's an awful question to ask of a professional linguist. Let's say that I can reasonably use six or seven, and then I have kind of listening and reading abilities in a few more. How many languages do you speak on a day? Well, I suppose on average, on a, on a normal day, I'll use three or four, maybe, roughly. And I include Swedish <laughs> in that count, obviously. I use English, English, French, and a wee bit of Croatian, at least, also daily. Nice. So you're a professor in psycholinguistics. Can you say a little bit about this discipline who, for some listeners who have never heard about it before? What do you study if you're a psycholinguist? So psycholinguistics is a field where we're interested in the relationship between language, mind, and brain, you might say. The key issue really for psycholinguistics is how it is possible for us to use language in real time. So that's a nice contrast to your previous podcast where you had the historical dimension. We're very much interested in the here and now. And so the big mystery is really how is it that it's possible to use language the way we do within a couple of hundred milliseconds? How do we go from having a vague idea about what we want to say to actually pick the right words, put them in the right order, program our speech apparatus, our hands for gesturing, getting the right intonation on so that people understand whether we're ironic and so on. This is done in such a short time span, despite it being such a complex process. And of course, conversely, we're also interested in how it's possible to understand the way we do rapidly. Again, it happens within a few hundred milliseconds 
we listen to the stream of noise, which is sound, language sound, and then we need to kind of break it down and reconstruct what the intention was in the person who was speaking. And again, interpret gestures and eyebrows and intonation and all those sorts of things. And of course, we do that also partly by predicting what's coming up. So all of this is really a mystery. How is it possible? And as a native speaker of a language, we don't typically realize that this is a complicated business, but we do realize it when we try to do it in a language that we're not very good at. So that really highlights the interest of looking at both the learning of a new language, whether we're thinking about children learning their first language or adults learning more languages, how all of this kind of comes about. How does it happen? So that's kind of the mind part of, of psycholinguistics or the psychological part of psycholinguistics. But then, of course, we're also interested in the physical architecture that allows all of that to happen. So that's where the brain comes in. And I should say that not every psycholinguist also works on the neurological side, but increasingly many of us do. Very interesting. I've seen brain scans of people talking and listening to music and, and all this kind of thing. So I guess that's also something that is included in your, in your lab. Absolutely. Yeah, but let's dive into some research then, now that we have a rough idea of what this topic is about. You have some ongoing studies. Can you give an example? Do you have any results that you can share? Yes, I'm very fortunate to have <laughs> lots of ongoing studies. But to exemplify the psycholinguistic nature of this, one line of work that um, we're busy with at the moment is a project where we're interested in how it is that we break into a new language if we don't sit in a classroom and we don't have a teacher to help us. No textbooks, you know, no grammars to, to flick through and so on. If we just think about being confronted with a completely unknown language, what is it that we do in order to break into it? And this is a very psycholinguistic question, right? Because it, it involves trying to understand what do we do with this sound stream that is an unknown language? How do we identify words? One thing about spoken language is that unlike text, it doesn't come with neat breaks between words. Right? In written text, you have a space, so you can see where one word ends and the next one begins. This is not true for speech. It's just one continuous acoustic signal. And so finding words in an unknown language, which is just noise, is actually a very difficult task. And yet both children and adults seem to be able to do this. So the word finding issue is one thing. And then, of course, you also have to somehow link meaning to a word that you've identified in that stream. And the question is, how do you do that? That's not a simple task either. We know that, for example, if you, you, know, you hear a particular word and somebody is pointing to something, let's say an animal, how do you know whether the word refers to the entire animal or, or to its nose or to the way it moves and so on? And this is called the indeterminacy problem. Again, it's the same for children and adults. This is actually a difficult task. So finding words, finding meaning, and then the really big job is to try to understand what is general about these things that you have encountered. So let's say that you identified a little word-like thing and you think you have found the right meaning. The next time you come across an animal, then you need to decide whether it's the same word that applies to that animal as to the previous one. So this is the generalizability issue. How can you generalize and create categories and so on? So we've been trying to understand how you do this when nobody helps you. And so we've done lots of different experiments. We started out by exposing Europeans to Mandarin Chinese, seven minutes of Mandarin Chinese in the form of a weather report. And then we, we didn't give them a particular instruction. We just exposed them to the weather report and then Afterwards, we gave them a surprise experiment where we then tried to see whether they had been able to identify words, meanings, and whether they could generalize. And of course, when we started out doing this, people said, that's madness. Nobody can learn anything in seven minutes. But it turned out that people can. Both children and adults are actually incredibly good at this breaking and entering business into a new language. So there is something about our capacity for language learning, identifying things that are frequent, 
and generalizing over those, there is something about that capacity that is really powerful. And very interestingly to us, it's powerful also in adults. It doesn't go away. And this I find really encouraging and very interesting. So we've done that with Mandarin Chinese, but what we're doing now is that we are now exposing people to sign language. Because here we suddenly have language that isn't acoustic. It's not in the auditory modality. Now everything that is linguistic comes in the visual form. So it's visual language. And so, of course, what we're now trying to understand is whether these mechanisms that we have for dealing with linguistic input, as we call it, this stream of, of incoming language, whether that applies in the same fashion to a signed language as to a spoken language. And I can share some very preliminary results suggesting that people seem to be able to break into sign language as well, even after only six minutes, in fact. So that's quite exciting. And again, we're looking at both children and adults. For now, we have only looked at adults for sign language. But again, I find it very interesting and cheering that adults are able to do this, especially since people in general, but even language experts, very often think that adults are quite hopeless at language learning. So that's one example. Do you see a difference between adults and children? Because, I mean, the um, general opinion is that kids are a lot better and faster in learning languages. Yes. I talk quite a lot about the general opinion about language learning capacities. In the professional literature on, on language acquisition, it's been known for quite some time that children are, in fact, not faster language learners than adults. Adults are quicker. Children take about six to seven years to actually become, you know, proper, capable language users. And if we think about it, if we think about adult learners, let's think about the newcomers who come to Sweden, for example, if they take six years before they kind of get anywhere sensibly with the language, we think of them as dreadful, but they don't, right? They start, adults typically start speaking a new language after a few weeks. And so adults have a great capacity for learning vocabulary, for example, really quickly, and also to learn grammar even, despite the fact that they have a terrible reputation. So the professional literature has this slogan that younger is better, but older is faster. And by better, in the case of the younger then, what is intended is that really children, of course, they typically become native speakers, right? And second language learners rarely do. And the thing that we seem very hung up about about adults is mainly, I would say, phonetics. So it's pronunciation. If we don't have good pronunciation, then it doesn't matter whether your grammar is okay. People still think of you as a fairly rubbish language learner. It's very unfair, but that's the way it is. So there is something, something about children's ability to become perfect pronouncers, if you like, which is different from adults. But in terms of vocabulary and grammar, Adults are not bad. That's very nice to hear. Um, since I've lived most of my adult life in other countries and communicating in other languages than my mother tongue. <laughs> But this is, um, let me just add that this is actually a very important observation, right? So when we, when we claim that adults are poor language learners, we somehow disregard the fact that millions of people across the world are learning languages as adults and use them professionally, capably, without having any trouble, right? So it seems very strange to me to disregard that level of success and then focus only on the fact that people might still have a foreign accent. Yes, maybe we should see it more as an accent, like, yeah, even native speakers sound different and have different um, dialects. Precisely. That's a very good, that's a very good comparison. And of course, in recent years, even linguistics has started to acknowledge the fact that not all native speakers use language at the same level. I mean, we're all aware of this, right? We speak differently to the principal as opposed to our, to our friends, uh, as opposed to the rector of the university and so on, right? So there are registered differences and not all native speakers have the ability to vary those registers appropriately. And then of course, as you say, we also have the dialectal variation. So there are many things about native speakers that we tend to gloss over when we compare them to second language learners or to bilinguals. I also read about another study where you are developing an app 
for smartphones to see how exchange students are learning uh, languages when they come here. I think it's exchange students who come to Sweden, right? When they come and are exposed to a new language. Yes, this project is a lot of fun. (laughs) But again, it's actually psycholinguistic in nature. And the key issue here is really that we know that frequency and frequency of use is extremely important to language development. What is annoying about our knowledge concerning second language acquisition and also bilingualism is that we have a very poor understanding of how language learners use the various languages at their disposal, or for that matter, how bilinguals go or move between the various languages they have to to play with. And so typically what people have done is that they have given people diaries and they have asked them to kind of make a note of when they use what language and with whom and so on. And honestly, this hasn't worked terribly well. So what we've done is that we've developed a a mobile phone application, which we give to our Swedish exchange students who go abroad. But also in the next step, we will give it to immigrants who come to Sweden and who have only just started learning Swedish. And the point of the the mobile app is that it sends push notifications at random intervals, asking people, what are you doing right now? Are you using language? And if so, you know, what language, with whom, and so on. So these are very quick and rapid little surveys, you could call them. But the point is that we torture people several times every day, and again, at random intervals, so that we don't always catch people when they are, you know, having dinner or whatever, but we want to get a broader view of what goes on and how language learners and bilinguals use their languages throughout the day. And of course, over longer periods of time. So we'll be following our participants for about three months, not all the time during those three months, but um, across a number of time points. And so we're hoping that by aggregating this data, we can can get a, a clearer picture of which languages are used with whom, for what purpose. And then we will, of course, also measure their language skills to see whether there is any change. It's very exciting. I was once an exchange student. Actually, that's how I came to Sweden. And well, so I would have liked such an app to see (laughs) how my own progress is going also. One thing with exchange students is that they often tend to meet each other and maybe not speak the local language. But I guess if Swedish people go, for example, to France, then they should be quite motivated to speak French or the local language. That's exactly right. And this is one of the, one of the issues with all the study abroad programs. that We know that the students go out to France and Germany or whatever, and they come back and they have hardly improved at all. <laughs> So going abroad isn't the, isn't the silver bullet here, but it's really a matter of using the language and using it in a, very, in a varied way. So talking to different people about different things and you, you need to flex your language muscles for the language to develop. Otherwise, it just stays the same and nothing much happens. One thing we see in almost all exchange students, however, is that their fluency tends to improve even if, you know, their grammar doesn't. So it's not entirely <laughs> wasted time. One thing about going abroad is also to experience a different culture. So I think it's never a waste of time, but um, in terms of languages, maybe it could be more improved to learn something. Very true. You also study the use of gestures, what we do not only when, with our speech, but also with our body when we talk to each other. What have you found there? I thought you were going to say, Why? <laughs> Well, why? Well, you can always study things, <laughs> no, but, but yes, why and, and why? What are your findings so far in that program? Well, the why question is quite simply that we know that whenever we engage in language use, we move all sorts of parts of our body, certainly not only the speech apparatus, but we move eyebrows, heads, hands and so on. And the hands is what we typically think of as gesture. But there is a lot of movement in the entire body whenever we use language. We also know that those who we, whom we talk to automatically attend to all this movement. So in a sense, whenever we use language, we also gesture. 
whether we are speaking or whether we are you know, listening, uh, as it were, to somebody. And so to ignore the multimodal aspect of language is to ignore a very important part of language use. So that's a very simple reason, in a sense, for, for a psycholinguist to be interested in, in gesture. But it's also, it's also, for me, it's interesting, what is interesting about gesture is that gestures are very closely related to speech in the sense that the meaning that I try to convey is also represented in gesture, typically. And of course, since we know that different languages tend to kind of focus on different meanings, that means that there is a potential difference in how people gesture depending on the language they speak. And it's not only the fact that gestures represent meaning, they also reflect the organization of the meaning. This is what we typically call grammar. So you could put something that you think is important at the beginning of an utterance or at the end of an utterance and so on. And this will have an effect on where a gesture appears. So the fact that different languages express different meanings and organize the meanings differently, this automatically means that speakers of different languages gesture differently, not as some sort of general cultural thing, but as a reflection of the properties of the language that they speak. Why is this interesting to me? Well, because the fact that we, we can talk about these cross-linguistically different repertoires of speech and gesture means that I have an additional tool for spying on what language learners and bilinguals are doing. So by looking at their gestures, I can actually catch a glimpse of what's going on in their minds as they are organizing their, their language, their speech, the meanings that they want to convey, and so on. And one of the key findings in this regard really is that when you look at second language speakers, for example, if you only look at their speech, it very often looks fine. People say the things that they're supposed to say, but when you start spying on their gestures, you sometimes find traces of their first language, so their mother tongue, kind of coming through in their gestures. It's a little bit like a manual accent. I've kind of called it this. It's a foreign accent, but in gesture, if you like. And so this is really interesting because it suggests that conceptually, these learners are probably still thinking in their first language, let's put it that way rather than in the new language that their mouth happens to be producing. And this is really interesting because it suggests that there is a kind of a potential clash within their heads as to how the, the meanings that their two languages offer them, how they kind of negotiate that clash. Let me give you a really concrete example because it sounds all abstract, right? If you think about the Swedish verbs for placement, setta, stella, legga, these verbs correspond to put in English, to mettre in French, and so on. So English and French typically only has one verb to express the placement of an object somewhere, whereas in Swedish, we don't have a put verb. We have to use one of these three more fine-grained verbs. Now, of course, when we think about our Swedish, Swedish students of English and French, they have absolutely no problem learning put or mettre, Whereas English and French students of Swedish have a very hard time coming to grips with setas de la lega, the difference between set stand and lay, essentially. Now, what is so interesting about this is that, I mean, we know that there are difficulties in this, in the acquisition of the spoken parts of this. But it turns out that speakers of different languages who have different numbers of verbs also gesture differently. So Swedes who are obsessed with the distinction between things that are standing and sitting and lying down, we're very interested in the objects and their orientation. And this is reflected in our gestures. So we produce gestures that have hand shapes that kind of reflect the objects. English and French speakers don't do this, they just point. And so when we look at Swedish learners of English and French, their speech might be completely fine, but they'll still produce a Swedish gesture, showing us that they're still obsessing about the object, even though a native French or English speaker doesn't care about the object. And of course, conversely, when we have French and English learners of Swedish, we can see that they continue to just point, even in Swedish, suggesting that they haven't understood that the object 
is a key element for understanding how these Swedish words work. So gestures in this sense kind of is an additional tool for me to look uh, under the hood <laughs> of a language learner to somehow spy on what's going on in their mind. But that must be very complicated because you think about the word you're going to use, but you don't think so much about the gesture, you do it more automatically. So they become fluent in gestures, so it must be a lot, lot harder than just learning the vocabulary and using the right word. Yes, in a sense, that's the whole point. The fact that we don't think about our gestures consciously, normally, this is exactly what makes it such an interesting tool for me to use to really understand what's going on in the moment of language production. And again, this is a psycholinguistic perspective. And this is also one of the things that make gesture analysis a little bit more like phonetics, you might say. So when I talk about the manual accent, it's not accidental because it is the gesture production is a little bit more like a foreign accent in speech, if you like. We don't think about where to put our tongue in the moment of speaking. And this is one of the reasons the foreign accent typically persists. If you don't talk fluently and somebody asks you to produce a particular weird sound like a Swedish you can probably do it but it's as soon as you start speaking fluently you stop thinking about exactly what to do with lips and tongues and so on that's when the underlying system appears and it's the same with gesture yeah so this is really a complex studies you're doing and there's a lot of there are a lot of different ingredients I think to your to your research and you have the Humanity Labs. What can you do at the Humanity Lab in Lund? Can you give us some examples? The Humanities Lab is a wonderful facility, if I do say so myself. It's a place where we essentially act in three areas. So we provide access to all kinds of technology, to all kinds of instruments, typically instruments that allow us to measure brain activity, measure eye movements, so we can look very carefully at exactly what people are looking at. We have motion capture, so you can put sensors on hands, like I do, for example, or on other parts of the body. We have virtual reality. We can put sensors on people's tongues, on the speech apparatus, and also get three-dimensional data, allowing us to see exactly what goes on inside the mouth while people are still speaking, and so on. So we have a, a large battery of different kinds of technology. More importantly, perhaps, we have people, so the experts who know how to work with these techniques and the methods that are associated with the technologies. And it's the combination of those two things that really make us unique, I think. And the, the third area in which we apply ourselves then is to offer training in the techniques and the methods that, that are at hand. And we also act very much as a kind of an arena for interaction. So we try to put researchers and scholars in touch with other researchers and scholars who might have expertise in an area that the first scholar didn't even know that they needed. People can come to us and say, oh, I'd like to, I hear you've got eye tracking and I'm an art historian. I want to know whether you look differently at a picture by Mondrian or as opposed to a medieval icon. Can I use eye tracking to do that? And of course, the answer is yes. But then our question is, have you used this technology before? Do you know what it, it entails and means and so on? And if the answer is then no, then we try to do some matchmaking and put the art historian together with somebody who has expertise in eye tracking. And sometimes we put scholars from our disciplines in touch with not only other researchers, but we put them in touch with industry, we put them in touch with museums and, and uh, the educational systems or the health healthcare system and so on. We, we do a lot of matchmaking. That leads me to another question about the research environment and multidisciplinarity, because I think we have gotten it by now that you need a lot of different kinds of expertise in your, in your research and in your surroundings. So what do you need for your studies? What disciplines do you utilize? Well, I personally, of course, work with other linguists, with phoneticians, with psychologists, cognitive neuroscientists, but I also work with anthropologists and to a certain extent, computer scientists. As you can imagine, if you, like me, you work, for example, with brain imaging techniques, you need a connection to medicine and to cognitive neuroscience and to neuropsychology. 
if you work with motion capture, like I do in order to capture what people are doing with their hands when they gesture, it's very useful to be able to work with somebody in computer science who can help us create sensible three-dimensional visualizations of the data. And of course, all kinds of e-scientific methods for dealing with big data sets so that we can run sensible statistics and so forth. Yes, I should have mentioned statistics, shouldn't I? That's also a science. It is an interdisciplinary endeavor. That's one of the reasons I think it's fun. But linguists in general, not only psycholinguists, linguistics in general, I think is inherently a fairly interdisciplinary place to be because psychology, sociology, history, anthropology, and so on, these are all neighboring sciences with whom we have a lot of exchange because, of course, we study historical developments and processes and so on, then it makes sense to have a historian on board. If you're interested in migration patterns and language shifts, then it's useful to have a geographer or you know, somebody like that or somebody who is an expert on DNA sequencing and so on, genetics, on board. And linguists, by and large, work like that these days. You really don't sit on your own in your little room and um, think great thoughts and do research that way. Well, I mean, you need to sit in your room and think, think for yourself as well. But there are, of course, pockets of, pockets of linguistics that are more theoretically oriented and where theoretical linguists, linguists don't necessarily work with data. But I, I would say that the empirically minded parts of, of linguistics tend to be interdisciplinary and collaborative. So that's, a, I think, an important development in the past 25 years or so. Because that was my next question, how things have changed over time. Um, you've been studying linguistics for a while, and I mean, what, what has been changing in your time? Well, I think that it's that. I think it's the, the shift away from solo work to, to this more collaborative enterprises. I also think that linguistics, it's, it's a very wide discipline and there are so many different types of linguistics there is psycholinguistics there is social linguistics there is contact linguistics historical linguistics theoretical linguistics and so on and each of these sub-disciplines have their own ways of working it'd be presumptuous of me to kind of say what might have changed for example in theoretical linguistics but i think on the whole even among the theoretically minded i think that there is a general shift towards collaborative work And perhaps also, to a certain extent, even more than before, to combine qualitative and quantitative approaches. I think linguistics has always been quantitatively minded, and in fact, also quite close to the sciences. I mean, again, if you think about phonetics, where we study uh, the movement of anatomical parts, we need to understand the anatomy of the speech apparatus. You then also need to understand acoustics and do measurements on the acoustic signal and so on. This is an integral part of, of linguistics, and I think it's always been natural to combine quantitative and qualitative work. But I, I think it's accelerated. It's also accelerated in terms of the size of data sets and the complexity of data sets. We are now combining speech recordings with video recordings, with uh, GPS data, with sensor-based data from the brain and, and so on. So the complexity of the data that we now work with, I think, is also much greater than it was, say, 30 years ago. Yeah, so be able to do all this interdisciplinary research and um, find each other and find each other's competences and use them. I mean, you need a good research environment, right? And um, you have been a co-founder of the Nijmegen Gesture Center, for example, and you've also been involved in studies of multilingual processing at Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands. And now you are um, heading the Humanities Lab, so... What is a good research environment for this interdisciplinary fields? Well, when we built the team around multilingual processing at the Max Planck, which I was fortunate enough to lead together with a cognitive neuroscientist, Peter Innefein, what we focused on was really finding people. So, I mean, the environment consists of people. And in a sense, finding the right people means finding people who are tolerant of uncertainty, I think, and patient, because when you're building an environment, it takes time. So if you, if you expect to somehow achieve new things within six months, then the building process, I don't think, is for you. 
it takes time and it takes time, especially if it's an interdisciplinary environment. You need curious and open-minded people, again, as I said, who are not afraid of being outside of their comfort zone. You need to be prepared to say, stop, I don't understand this. Why do you use this word? This means something else to me. And it's a matter of developing a kind of bilingualism, if you like, by disciplinarity, or at least, at least an understanding of the terminology and so on that is used in another discipline. And then, of course, having respect um, for the expertise and the skills that come from a different area. So, I mean, there is no environment without people and finding the right people and getting the mix right, I think, is, is absolutely key. And I'm not saying anything that lots of people don't know, right? I mean, this is, in a sense, it's trivial, but <laughs> it's not trivial to actually do it, to make it happen and to, and to make it function. Of course, you, you also need, you know, you need activities and so on that allow the members of an environment to really explore each other's expertise and then again, kind of wait for the magic to happen, which it will do if you if you throw people together and they are of the right mindset, right? They will come up with new interesting ideas and, and projects and thoughts and, and so on. Now, from the point of view of, of the humanities lab, that's slightly different because it's not only a matter of finding the right people. In the lab, being an infrastructure, we also need to provide the instruments, the tools. We need to keep them up to date. And all of that requires funding, obviously. So the importance of funding <laughs> is also vital. Again, that's a trivial statement, but nonetheless, right, it's important. What I think is, again, key is that there is a certain element of sustainability to all this because all such building takes time. And so making sure that people don't come and go too frequently is, I think, also an important thing. Again, the Max Planck Institute, where I was lucky enough to be for 10 years, is characterized by the fact that people have midterm contracts somewhere between two and five years. And five years is supposed to be the maximum. Some of us are able to sink our clothes in and stay on for a bit longer. And the idea behind that is that there is some sort of sweet spot there between the two, three, four, five years where you can start risky things and develop them and, and have time to build something new with, with new colleagues without being hounded by the, the need for seeking new funding and so on once every six months. But on the other hand, you're not meant to stay too long because, you know, you want to spread the light as it were. So you leave, you leave the mothership to then go out and plant new ideas in other environments. It's a very sensible idea, which you find in all the Max Planck Institutes. You also, as I said in the introduction, you are a non-resident long-term fellow for the programs in languages and cognitive sciences here at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. And this is an environment for collaborations between different academic disciplines and scholars come and go. Can you see any parallels there to the research environments where you are now and have been previously? Absolutely. I think the unique and wonderful thing about SCAS is that really it provides time to focus on one, one thing. Many of the other environments where I've been, the Max Planck being one of them, you're not really supposed to do only one thing. I mean, the parallel is obvious in, in the sense that you have this deeply interdisciplinary environment where you're obliged to interact with other disciplines and you're supposed to think new things. That's the job in a sense, that's the job description. Try something new, try something risky, and try your ideas against all these clever people around you who are sure to have good criticisms or other ideas or, you know, that they'll help, help you sharpen your thinking and, and focus. This is wonderful. And that's wonderful about SCAS as well as about other places where I've been. I think one difference, for example, to the Humanities Lab is, of course, that I kind of I think of SCAS as a place where you talk and think. And I think of the humanities lab as a place where you talk and think and then do, <laughs> because you have all the instruments and the kind of facilities for computational linguistics and corpus linguistics and so on. You have all of that in the lab. So you talk and think, but then you do. That's the addition in the humanities lab. But really, SCAS is, is unique, I think, in many ways, especially now when it's opened up from being 
more focused on the humanities and social sciences to now also include medicine and science and, and even technical sciences. And I think that's absolutely marvelous. That is such an opportunity for the fellows. It's, it's really, really special. It's very nice when the disciplines can uh, interact and help each other and have new ideas. I was just talking in the last episode to Jenny Larsson about that sometimes you don't even know what's out there and who can help you and what you can do with somebody else's methods or ideas and so on. So that's why you have to meet somewhere, right? Precisely. The physical meeting space is hugely important. Yeah. Right now we're having problems with physical meetings because of the ongoing pandemic, but we hope that will pass one day and that we can all meet again. We have uh, the next topic on this podcast will be diversity. And of course, I was immediately thinking then about the diversity of language, both within the language, which you have also already addressed with different dialects and different use of vocabulary, grammar and so on, um, but also the diversity of using a lot of different languages like some people or a lot of people do every day because they live in another country or they talk to different people during a day in different languages. So how can a diversity of language contribute to a to diversity in general in society? I think language is at the heart of it. I think diversity without language is, that doesn't make any sense. You just mentioned the diversity that we find in native speakers, the registers, the dialects, and then added to that the many different layers of different languages that we master at different levels, but use nonetheless. I don't think any of us can imagine a, a reality where we're not um, exposed to English, for example, in a Swedish context. YouTube, social media, television, uh, popular music, you name it, right? And of course, it's been like that forever. This isn't a new thing, although people tend to focus very much on the current multilingual situation, but it's always been like that. The linguistic diversity is kind of built into our DNA. It's, it's how we function and operate. But there's much more to say, I think, about linguistic diversity. We can think of linguistic diversity on a par with biological diversity. We all know, of course, that the number of languages spoken in the world is shrinking very rapidly. Um, we have endangered languages that are about to become extinct. And with the death of a language, you see the death of, of everything that's encapsulated in that language. That would be cultural practices, belief systems, kinship systems, how we, in other words, how we think about the world and our own place in the world. That's encapsulated in the language. And as soon as a language disappears, there is a whole part of human history and the human experience that goes with it. So to me, It doesn't make sense to talk about diversity without also talking about linguistic diversity because it's such a fundamental part of who we are. The question of whether or not we become different people when we use a different language, that's of course a, an ancient one, whether we think differently when we use another language. It's an ancient question that was uh, taboo for a long time, but which is now again very much at the forefront of a certain sub-discipline in, in linguistics and where a lot of headway has been made, really suggesting that we may not think entirely differently when we change language, but we are certainly not unaffected by the differences in the linguistic systems, even to the point that our perception shifts a little bit depending on what language we're using, as long as we're using language. And what that means is that, for example, you'll look at the world and pick up on certain details slightly differently if you happen to be speaking English as opposed to if you happen to be speaking German. And there is now hard evidence for that. So it's no longer simply a philosophical question, but it's become an empirical one. So diversity and language, I think you, need to, you have to think about language when you discuss diversity, human diversity at least. Yeah, and also living with multiple languages like many people do, not at least in the academic setting, but also... In, in everyday life, really, like immigrants coming from one country already speaking a diversity of languages and then learning another one and also improving English and so on. That is something that we see. Is that something that is 
good or bad or how shall we how shall we look at this this mixing or this use of multiple languages and sometimes also mixing or you know can get a lot out there <laughs> well multilingualism isn't inherently good or bad it depends on what you want to use it for i think one thing that is vaguely problematic in northwestern europe is that we have come to think of identity, national identity, as linked to a monolingual model. This stems from the 1850s. It's the, the growth of the national state that's kind of brought with it this enormous focus on how being a monolingual native Swedish speaker, that is the norm, forgetting conveniently that hardly anyone is a monolingual Swedish speaker, certainly not in this day and age when English is everywhere. We're all bilingual to some extent, whether we like to acknowledge that or not. But there is, with that, with that focus on, on the monolingual native norm, also comes the conviction that you probably can't ever speak another language quite as well as you speak your native language. Now, again, empirically, we know that that's not true. People leave, move to another country, take up another language and stop using their first language. If you do that, you will find that your first language starts to attrite, is the technical term, right? It starts to fritter away and become porous and no longer sounds or looks like that form of the language that you might have used when you were still living in the country. So if you stop using a language, any language, whether it's your first or third or 18th, if you stop using it, it will change. We also know that anyone who has more than one language has an interaction. Everything that you have in your mind under the hood actually interacts with everything else. So there is a, there's a lot to say about the myth of the monolingual native speaker, which we somehow believe in, right? But it doesn't really correspond to much of a reality out there. And the third thing is that with this native monolingual norm also comes the conviction that if you can't speak another language properly, you're not a bilingual. Again, forgetting that we tend to use language skills for different things. Even if I don't have full command of the entire repertoire of Catalan, I might still be able to use Catalan for certain practical purposes. Does that not mean then that that's a good thing? Well, it's a good thing if it makes my everyday life easier and I can, I can communicate and achieve the communicative things that I need to achieve, even if I don't sound like a native speaker of Catalan in every possible respect. So, the fact that we can have different levels of language skills in different languages that we use for different purposes, this is something we need to understand rather than simply saying, oh, is it good or bad that you have a person here who speaks, I don't know, Farsi, Arabic and Swedish and English, typically, using the languages for different purposes. No, I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. The problems that come with this kind of thing, the bad, in other words, these are socially constructed aspects. If you cannot achieve what you want to achieve using a particular language, then obviously that is an issue. But there is nothing inherently wrong about being multilingual and having multiple toys to play with, as I like to say. As far as I'm concerned, it's a richness to be acknowledged, to be exploited, and then to be very careful with, depending on whether you think that a lack of certain skills might put you at risk socially, health-wise, and so on, right? Again, these are complex issues and there, is, there, there are many things to think about in this regard, but it's not as simple as it's black and white, good or bad, to be multilingual. But it's still very encouraging to hear that we can, we can uh, be multilingual on different levels and for different purposes, and also that adults are also good at learning new languages. So I think that's a wonderful thing to hear. So I was thinking to ask you finally to give us some tips uh, how to best learn in other languages as an adult if you have any and if there are any shortcuts to sound a little bit more professional than you actually are. I hate this question. I, d I do because as a psycholinguist this is kind of not what I do. I understand. The best tip is to swim in the new language. In other words, to use it as much as you can and in as many different ways as you can. And that can mean anything from watching a cookery show on Italian on television or on the internet to having a, a chat friend. We used to have pen friends. 
But to have a chat friend and you try to use the language that way doesn't hurt to also take a class of some sort. For most of us, the combination of having some kind of structured teaching and trying to use the language, that's the best combination, really. And then you need to be patient because learning a language is not a quick business. It, it does take time and it does take a lot of investment. So if you are hoping to be able to learn Italian by taking an evening class for two hours per week, think again. <laughs> That's not going to be enough. You need to, you need to do a little bit more than that. But in terms of sneaky, sneaky tips for how you can sound a little bit more like a native speaker, a nice little trick is to pay attention to how native speakers hesitate what do they sound like when they hesitate when they pause when they go um the um and the ah those are the english ways of hesitating it sounds different in french it's an uh sound and the swedish hesitation sound is different again and so on and it's quite quite nifty to try to pick those up and and start start using them because it really does convey the impression that you are much more native like than you are Another useful tip is to use what we call discourse particles. And these are the little words that don't really mean anything, but that we tend to stick in when we're thinking about what to say next and, and so on. So, well, for example, is a, such a word in English, you know, when you're thinking, or you know, that's another one. One mustn't overuse them, of course, because then they become annoying, but they are quite, quite useful little, little things to pepper your, your speech with in order to sound slightly more capable than you maybe are. Mm -hmm. So we should pay attention to the little things. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Is there anything that you would like to add? No, I think this has been lovely. Thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to talk about my favorite things in the world. Thank you very much for being with us and telling us a little bit about more about your research and encouraging us to learn new languages. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Skas Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and would appreciate if you want to share it with your colleagues and friends. You can find Skas Talks on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. If you subscribe to Skas Talks, you will not miss the next episode. In the coming episodes, we continue with our two current themes, language and diversity. We hope that you want to join us then as well. Bye for now.